When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel, a podcast of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Dr. Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. Today, we're interviewing Professor Jeffrey Jones about his new book, Deeply Responsible Business, a Global History of Values-Driven Leadership, published by Harvard University Press in 2023. Professor Jones is Isidore Strauss Professor of Business History at Harvard Business School and a Fellow of the Academy of International Business. He is the author of many books and first I'm going to mention key monographs that are important for the academic field of global business history, which is the reason I initially read um, your work, Professor Jones. Uh, some of these books are Beauty Imagined, A History of the Global Beauty Industry, uh, the edited book, The Oxford Handbook in Business History, and Multinationals and Global Capitalism. More recent books are the co-author Leadership to Last, How Great Leaders Leave Legacies Behind, and the edited manuscript Business Ethics and Institutions, the evolution of Turkish capitalism in global perspectives. I'm grateful you're here with me today, Jeff, and welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. I have also the pleasure of having one more person joining us today who has also read the book and will pose some of the questions. Professor Christopher Marquez is the Senior Professor of Chinese Management at the University of Cambridge. And previously, he was the um, Samuel Johnson Professor in Sustainable Global Enterprise at Cornell University. He has also published in related topics to the book we are presenting today. For example, his 2020 manuscript, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Thanks so much for being here with me today, Chris. Welcome to the show. Yeah, my pleasure. I'd like to start the interview by getting to know a bit more about you, Geoff. Can you tell us more about your background? Where are you from? 
what brought you to study uh, business in the first place. Um, and as I was writing the introduction of your presentation, I could see there's a clear shift uh, towards research topics more focused on sustainability, corporate responsibility, and green business from a global perspective. Could you tell us how all this happened? Uh, well, Paul, it's a long story. <laughs> so born, born in Britain, moved to the United States uh, 22 years ago, um, quite a long time. Um, I did my first, my PhD on the uh, history of the oil industry, and it began as a political history, looking at government policy. But I found it was more interesting to look at firms. And I got into the archives of several companies, including Shell. And I got the sort of hunger, if you like, to do archival-based research. And then I sort of went from one industry to another, always looking at a global um, perspective. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see how my work has evolved towards more interest in both uh, responsibility generally and, and in the environment. And I reflect, I think that reflects both the fact that the um, the world is not going well and these issues are constantly in front of us. And I think it reflects my teaching at Harvard Business School too because um, a lot of my students are very interested in these issues and I found myself responding to that, developing new cases on that. So my teaching and research have moved in, in kind of um, tandem. I've also had a growing feeling that a lot of academia is a complete waste of time because it involves nothing but people talking to a small group of other people. And you write books which no one reads and so on and so on. So I think at the time when the world is, is not doing well, academics have some responsibility to play their part in trying to think to make the world um, a better place. Great. Yeah, I like that. Well, I, I, I guess that's what your uh, book um, concludes, right? Uh, but let's start with the book. Um, my first question uh, is about the title and what do you mean by deeply responsible business? And the introdu in the introduction, you also talk about the difference between these terms and, co and corporate social responsibility. Can you start uh, giving as an overview with um, this long history of the idea that business are businesses can be more than profit-making entities, and what is the difference between corporate social responsibility and your new terms, deeply responsible business, businesses? A key point is in the subtitle, um, the global history of values-driven leadership. So corporate social responsibility typically is a unit of analysis is the firm. And I want to talk about uh, individual um, leaders. Of course, individual leaders impact the strategy and the culture of firms, but my focus is very much on the individual leader. So that's, I mean, that's um, one big difference, which I think separating me from CSR. Um, the, I mean, the second thing is, I mean, there's a large literature on CSR. Um, there's quite a large amount of cynicism about CSR too. Uh, often, rip, you know, you, you do some bad things and then get five or five percent of your profits by to do good things. 
um, et cetera, et cetera. So I really wanted to talk about people who envisage for-profit business as a real way to um, change the world for the better, not people who give away 5% of their profits for this charity or that charity, which is fine, by the way. I don't object to that. But people who really want something more um, radical. Um, I um, borrowed the term flourishing from um, the management scholar John Aaronfield. Um, these are people who want to make humanity um, flourish, um, achieve their full full potential. So it's a much, in my view, a much more radical view about the role of the business leader. I had a follow-up question, and I think it's um, important just uh, because you mentioned your, your subtitle, and it's this global uh, perspective, right? Because usually also CSR is very much focused on um, Western nations, businesses, and especially, I think, as much as I don't know about <laughs> about the field, but especially focused in, in the United States, correct? Uh, so how does, um, how does your book contribute to that gap? I tried quite hard to be, in effect, global. So I have uh, quite a lot on India, on Egypt, uh, on, on Japan, and some other countries. And I think that's extremely important. And for this topic, particularly important, because it turns out that a it turns out if you're looking for examples of really <laughs> deeply responsible business leaders, the non-Western world is populated with many of these. And one could, you know, one could debate why that should be the case. Um, and I talk about, you know, influence of particular religions or, or, or whatever. But this is something I think, particularly in the our present century, you can no longer just write stories just about, you know, the Western world. It makes no it makes no sense. Most people don't live in Europe and the United United States. Many interesting and important things are happening everywhere else. And I think that everywhere else has to be integrated centrally into into narratives. Yeah, if I just say, you know, I really uh, agree with that and appreciate your your follow up, Paula. That was I would say there are two things that really that I really enjoyed about your book, Jeff, more than anything. And I think one is the international flavor of your argument and, and the examples. And I think the other aspect that really stood out to me, and I think this really, and maybe it stood out to me because it connects into my work, uh, is how one of the arguments that I try to make a lot is that this last 50 years you know, of agency theory, of shareholder dominance, um, which is very much a U.S. thing, is really the aberration. And actually, business and economic relations throughout history, you know, there's a lot of examples of, of what many of the companies that you're talking about today around, you know, be it Whole Foods or Trillium. Uh, and, but I didn't have the historical depth that you do to actually make that connection. So I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, what you think about this last 50 years, sort of since Milton Friedman's, you know, famous social responsibility of, um, of business is to deliver profits and how, I don't know, maybe the entrepreneurs today are even more impressive because in some ways they're swimming against the tide of this shareholder 
dominance. And, you know, I guess I'm curious to hear what you think about these, this period of the last 50 years and how the examples from before that can help the business leaders, the, you know, truly responsible business leaders that you're talking about, uh, you know, engage in their, their important work. Oh, you're totally right that um, that this Friedman view of the of business is a, I think, is an aberration. It's a historical aberration. I mean, as I make clear, I mean, there's throughout the history of capitalism, there's been a, you know a story, a kind of a good, bad, and the ugly story. <laughs> there've been bad firms, there've been like regular f- firms which can nevertheless do damage, and there've been like very socially responsible firms, but. What you haven't got is, you know, a universal pattern of everybody saying the whole purpose of all firms should think about is maximizing shareholder returns. I actually go back to Adam Smith and, you know, emphasize there that Adam Smith, who's often held up as representing this kind of view, doesn't really represent this view at all. He's He's very keen on the ethics of business. He's very keen. He has this character, the impartial spectator, who features in his his first book, who's kind of a conscience. He hates speculators. So Adam Smith would have hated most of the crypto market, for for, for example. Um, And, you know, that's the so-called founder of capitalism, right? (laughs) He didn't believe in the Milton Friedman world. And since then, yeah, I mean... I mean, you have all sorts of experiments with uh, what the role of business should be in society. A whole lot of different things are are going. But you just don't get this, like, Friedman story, really, until this rapid diffusion, really from the 1980s. And, you know, looking at it historically... We can see that that view, I think, is beginning to disintegrate, right? So we have the uh, top business people saying, whoopsie, we've got to take care of other stakeholders. We have these alternative forms of organizing business flourishing. So I think we're going to, I think we're basically looking at a maybe a 40-year period when this view flourished for reasons we could discuss. And it's run into the reality of massive climate change, massive inequality. And it's, you know, it's increasingly absurd to say the only purpose of business is to maximize shareholder profits. How do you say that when you've got climate change and other things um, going on? At the beginning of your book, you mentioned key names that pursued actions that were not usual in terms of ethical business. Can you explain why you start with them? And I'm thinking of key people like Robert Owen or Joshua Wedwood. So the setting is Britain, which is the first industrial nation. So um, with the first industrial nation, you get the you get the emergence of an industrial workforce who often lived in terrible conditions, there were no social provisions, there's no government controls over anything. So lots of horrors, which, you know, Engels and Marx wrote about uh, very vividly and very correctly. So these initial characters, the ones you mentioned, I, I, they, 
I don't identify them as deeply responsible, actually, but as um, they don't fit my full criterion. But they're a group of people who say, you know, we shouldn't just exploit labor. They provide um, better working conditions, sometimes housing conditions uh, for, the, for their workforce. Some are more radical than others. Robert Oren was in his new Lanark village was he had a very egalitarian vision. And all of them are flawed because, as I make quite clear, they all had a vested interest, too, in a loyal and stable um, workforce. So it made sense for them to also do this. The only point I made is that most people don't do this. So within that world, within that world, um, they are more responsible. But like all my characters, uh, and I make a point of that, I don't want to, I'm not writing a book about saints. Uh, almost, all, in fact, everybody I write about, there are some trade-offs, downsides, you, you know, critiques you can do. And I think, I think that's important to say, in part because if these people are going to be a, an example to the future, uh, you don't want to present people as this kind of perfect human being, which nobody is. But as I think we're doing a world of favor if we prevent them as partly flawed. So you know, anybody can be more responsible. But actually, the focus on the chapter is not these characters who are you know, early pioneers, but this uh, the Cadbury family in um, in Bourneville. The Cadburys are um, are Quakers. Quaker family, George and his brother take over the small family business and they grow the largest chocolate company in Britain. So why do I choose them as deeply responsible leaders? Well, I identify three characteristics of deeply responsible leaders and the Cadbury's, George Cadbury fits all of them. The first is choice of industry. So the Cadbury's went into chocolate because they are Quakers, pacifists, who didn't want to do any harm to anybody. Uh, it's drinking chocolate when they go into it, primarily. They wanted to uh, provide a palatable alternative to alcohol. So my first criterion for a deeply responsible leader is the industry they choose. Is it doing, is they seeking to do good or bad to society? My second characteristic is that they interact with other stakeholders, with um, with humility, humility, honesty. And Cadbury's again fit that very well. They provide excellent welfare provision, but they go beyond welfare provision for their employees. They build a they build a, a village for people to work. They eventually transform and add to um, to live. They eventually transfer the ownership to a trust so they don't even keep it in their own hands. Cadbury um, realized that although he could do many things inside his firm, the problem of inequality was so great that he needed to achieve things outside his firm. So he lobbied selflessly to achieve social improvements, including old age pensions, which brought no benefits at all to his company. Again, he recognized that you have to work with governments if you want to achieve large-scale change. 
my third criterion for a deeply responsible business leader is um, investing in community. And he created this um, community called um, Bourneville with um, housing, um, village green, uh, lots and lots of, it's a very nice place to live. In fact, it was recently voted the nicest place to live in Britain. And as I said, he transfers the ownership of that to a trust. So, and I should mention that I actually grew up about uh, 10 minutes away from Bourneville. So I actually know that place extremely, uh, extremely well. So I think it's overall, he, they're very radical. You know, he's doing things, he's treating his firm as a, an experimental site to improve conditions, offer good conditions for workers, education. He realizes you have to do things outside your firm and you build, and you build a community all while achieving an extremely um, successful business. Well, I'm intrigued to go there. I'm actually in the UK right now, having you know recently moved to uh, to Cambridge and haven't haven't traveled much in the UK. So, Bourneville, I, I will put it on my list of places to visit. Uh, it sounds you know, sounds pretty interesting. Really interesting social experiment. Yeah. Well, one question I have, Jeff, and I, and I really appreciate you saying that these folks, um, you know, we we have to say that they're not perfect and sort of take the you know, the bad, um, you know, sort of expose that as well. And, and I know in recent years, the chocolate industry uh, supply chains have come under a lot of scrutiny. Did, did um, the Cadbury folks have any sort of thinking about their, you know, beyond just their community and the workers in the UK, but to, to where their chocolate was sourced? Well, yes, they run into a, actually a big issue because they get most of their chocolates and cocoa supplies initially from um, Portuguese colonies, Santo Tome in, in Africa. And it emerged um, embarrassingly that, that there were virtual slave conditions um, in these conditions. And this is... Uh, for the, um, the Quakers were prominent in campaigning against slavery in earlier periods. So for their suppliers <laughs> to be engaged in virtual slavery was a huge embarrassment. Uh, and they do, um, they do try to find out what's happening. They send people there. They talk to the British government who doesn't want them um, to get too critical of the Portuguese situation. But it ends up it takes quite a few years to uh, for them to really um, shift their shift their supplies, and they it was a court case for defamation. For newspapers sue them for anyway. It was it was a it was a big mess. So they do ultimately um, shift their supplies out of there. They do know there is a problem. It all just moves um, very slowly. In retrospect, you could say too slowly, but finding out what was going on was very difficult. I think they probably tried their best. They don't get any support from the British government at all. Um, and in fact, in World War One, they actually, you know, the British government tells them to resume getting supplies from the Portuguese colonists because they want to keep them on side during the, during the conflict. 
So it's a, it's an awkward it's an awkward situation, really. But it's you know it's indicative of what we still have today, right? A lot of these bad things going going on, some of which are hard to understand. Although I think today it was easier to under, today it's easier to understand bad problems than it was then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great discussion and. Perhaps a fourth category for today's uh, responsible business is to also look back, right? So can we go to the uh, American case and, and talk about what were the, who were the pioneers and what did they do? The opening chapters are all about how you, the problem of inequality and a set of people who respond to the challenge of, inner, of inequality. So uh, the second chapter is, dealing with this guy, Edward Filene, who built an extremely big retailing business based in, in Boston. Um, he's extremely concerned about the problem of inequality and again sees his business as a way to address this. So the core of the business, he believes, is that if you can pay high wages and charge low prices, you can address the problem of of inequality. And that's what they're trying to do all the way through in the late 19th, 19th century. Um, but Edward Filene is, um, he's interesting because he wants to take it one step further. He uh, comes to the conclusion that ownership of property is, is a key problem in social inequality. And so he develops this plan to, over time, transfer ownership of his company, the entire company, to his employees as a strategy to reduce inequality. And for one reason or another, that plan just doesn't work. And part of the problem was his employees didn't want to take on ownership, but another way of looking at it, they don't. he's a very difficult character to work with, a kind of flawed personality. And he probably didn't articulate it very well, um, his um, his case at all. But it's a very radical view, I, I think, and one we could um, do with revisiting at the pre present time. But again, um, just like George Canberry, uh, this guy is not somebody who focuses just on his firm. He campaigned unsuccessfully against corruption in, in Boston. He has many other uh, uh, things. And after he gets kind of pushed, virtually pushed out of his company, he's becoming a prime mover in the um, credit union movement. And he devotes a huge amount of his own time and his own money to expanding the credit union movement in the United States. And again, responding to inequality is key to that because he says, you know, if you can't access credit, you can never sort of, you know, build yourself, build yourself up. So his whole life is a story of figuring out ways to address the problem of, of uh, inequality. And the final thing I'll say about Filene is the end is just before his career, he becomes incredibly concerned about the problem of fake news 
and so sets up an institute to combat what it, what was called propaganda at, at that time. Because again, he thinks you can never find uh, valid solutions to social problems unless you have actual, actual factual information. So that guy is extremely relevant um, today, right? When we have a crisis of democracy caused by fake, by basically by by fake news. Um, so I like Edward Filene. I think it's like many of my characters. He's been sort of forgotten by by history. Some people in Boston have some sort of memory of something called Filene's Basement, or, or something, and and that's it. But this guy was a really, yeah, a very uh, radical social social thinker, really um, amazing guy. Yeah, that was one of the more interesting chapters that I found. Sort of having grown up in the U.S. and having heard of, yeah, Filene's the famous sort of Filene's basement, which I think actually not just didn't just exist in Boston, but they had Filene's basement at a variety of different, um, you know, sort of sort of places. Uh, and also, you know, something I really think a lot about is ownership and employee ownership, and so that, you know, was certainly a real interesting example of how. Again, I mean, one you know, one of the takeaways that I took from your book is just the importance of of understanding historical business models, and that things like you know propaganda or fake news or misinformation are not new. Actually, they are things that we have struggled with a long time, and and we can learn a lot by looking back in our in our history. And I think, you know, on the ownership topic, people so much celebrate people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and this the Silicon Valley model of let's give Mark Zuckerberg or everyone like so much control, but actually thinking of ways to engage employees, you know, in ownership, like the Mondragon in, in you know, sort of Spain, where you're from, Paula, that has done, you know, that and amazing and, and the UK around Manchester and uh, as well, I think there are a lot of um, models that we can look to to try to create a more sustainable world. So I think that's a big contribution of your book, Jeff. The key is to, um, I think, is to figure out ways how to mainstream these alternative models. Right. Because, the, yeah, the models are there, but they've never been mainstreamed. So right. how can we learn from these examples and then think about that? wider process to make that uh, yeah it is not a focus of your book but you mention it across some of the chapters can you comment about philanthropy and its origins in the case of the u.s i do i mean modern american philanthropy uh, typically stated from andrew carnegie gives away his vast amount of money to set this foundation then you get others following I mean, that's not my primarily concern, although most of the people I talk about have some philanthropy. Filing very little. He was very he was very critical of it, as a matter of fact. Um, most of them no, do do something. I think philanthropy is um, it's quite controversial. And I think for I mean, a basic problem is how is thinking through how all these people make their money in the first place. So we've got waves of philanthropy you know, 
coinciding with huge amounts of inequality in the United States. That happens in the late 90, early 20th century. That's where Carnegie's getting his money from. And over the last 20 or 30 years, right? So how was um, Bill Gates able to accumulate a ridiculous amount of money, right? It's, it's the way the business system is, is working. So I think critics of such philanthropy would say, whoopsie, this is, you know, you, you really need to look at the system. It's okay. It's not okay that you've got a system that creates so much wealth, even if they're giving all the money back. And I think critics would also say it's not really okay that completely unelected and unresponsible to anybody um, people can make huge decisions on the allocation of these monies. You know, I mean, the Gates Foundation has done wonderful things, but there's it decided what parts of the health sector to focus on, uh, what not to focus on, and it's an unelected, unelected, you know, unregulated body. And you can say that across the board with with philanthropy. Um, so it's, um, you know, I don't I deliberately don't talk about the philanthropists as responsible business, deeply responsible business. Great. Uh, thank you. A very interesting discussion indeed, and very, and with very clear implications with current debates. Um, before we move on to the chapters that focus on Japan and India, I'd like to ask you to expand on what you researched uh, for the case of Germany and the German industrialist Robert Bosch. Uh, Robert Bosch was... Um one of the most innovative German um, business leaders in the late 19th century. Um, he and his company um, really made the internal um, combustion engine viable. Um, but I'm interested in, because of his deep responsibility, he was, um, <clears throat> like many German uh, big business um he offered welfare facilities for his staff, but he tried not to be paternalistic and to give them choices. Um, he was always concerned to give them choices. His, his products were used in wars that made him very guilty. So in World War I, his company earned a lot of money, which he then devoted to philanthropy in education, supporting the poor in the city of Stuttgart, and in and in health. He's interesting too because later on in the interwar years he faces a major um, moral dilemma. Hitler comes to power in 1933. Bosch hates Hitler. What do you do as a um, what do you do as a business leader in such circumstances? And here he and his company kind of drew a fine line. They supplied the regime with equipment that they needed for rearmament. At the same time, they sheltered Jews and, more importantly, perhaps even members of the German resistance against, against Hitler. His chief executive both joined the Nazi party and was prominent in um, supporting um, Jews and others and was given an award by Israel after World War II. 
actually, um, same award that Oscar Schindler got. And this raises, this dual role raises this sort of, um, you know, what's the balance sheet of that? <laughs> is supplying, is protecting Jews and protecting the resistance more important than supplying the regime with weapons of war? Or have, and I, I don't give a explicit answer, and I think that I want the readers to think about to think about that moral dilemma. Should we go then to Japan and India? I think uh, the case of Japan is also very interesting because of its relations with the state. Uh, perhaps that makes it that's one factor that makes it different from uh, Western countries or from the U.S. and Great Britain. So each of these chapters, right, is addressing the problem seeing how for business, a problem at their time. So I deal with Japan and uh, India because their problem in the late 19th century was that they hadn't developed large industrial structures. They, they were latecomer countries. So what's the responsibility of a business leader in a latecomer country? And then I explore you know, the Tatars in India and this guy Shibusawa Ichi in, in Japan who um, develops a model of business responsibility called Gapon Shuki, which is variously translated as you know, ethical capitalism or, or whatever. But his idea was that um, Japan both needs to modernize and to modernize in a way that all members of the community benefit, rather than a, a Milton Friedman view that only shareholders should should benefit. These cases, I think, um, interested me also because in both the cases of India and Japan, you see traditional religions or philosophies repurposed to think about responsible business. The Tatars in India were um, Parsis, and elements of Parsi, they used elements of Parsi beliefs to think about business responsibility. Shibusawa Ichi was a um, Confucian, Confucian scholar. Uh, Confucius had nothing to do with business, <laughs> nothing at all. But he repurposed Con Confucianism into a model of business responsibility in a, in a very interesting uh, fashion and created really quite a uh, quite a profound way of thinking about uh, thinking about things and the guy is no fool the guy is a venture capitalist I think he sets up like 500 companies in Japan it's ridiculous some of the most you know, biggest companies he he's there plugging this idea of gap on responsibility stakeholder capitalism all, all of that. And like all my characters, uh, I also identify flaws. In particular, he becomes associated with Japanese imperialism uh, unwillingly. I mean, he's not, a, he's not roaring for Japan to take uh, foreign countries. But when Japanese military does take Taiwan or Korea, um, he does invest in those places telling a story that they're helping their societies, but, you know, retrospectively, that seems far from a, far from a good idea. Great. Uh, now, can you say a little bit more about the Taras? 
the family is led in this period by J.N. Tartar, who um, really invests big time in cotton textiles, who um, founds the first luxury hotel in, um, in Bombay, Mumbai, um, the Taj Mahal, which is still there actually, um, who lays the basis for uh, India's first steel producing company as well. So very successful entrepreneur, um, but very strong social uh, belief in social purpose of business. Uh, and I argue in the book, this is heavily influenced by his religious beliefs. So Rashtrams saw the world as a, a, a battle between uh, good and evil, a benevolent God and a wicked spirit. And human beings can do good or they can do bad. So the, it's very important to do good on earth in their view. And that's what he sets to do. Uh, like many of my uh, deeply responsible business leaders, he is uh, a pioneer in providing welfare benefits for his um, for his employees, including introducing an eight-hour day, the first person in, in India um, to do to do that. Um, but yeah, there's much more going on. Uh, it's a huge investment in education. And he lays the basis for the um, Indian Institute of, of Science. There's a huge concern for ethical behavior, correct ethical behavior. Again, reflecting Zoroastrian beliefs, there's a considerable concern for the, for the environment. So when he um, built a hydroelectric plant, he not only wanted to generate electricity for his own operations, he talked about the, how he could make Bombay, a smokeless city using cleaner hydropower. And they planted trees and um, water catchment areas all around this. So real, really balanced ecological concerns as well. Great. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> next in your book, you talk about how these ideas of responsibility and giving back to society enter business schools and um, how they expand uh, rapidly, but also how they encounter some limitations to to its um, implementation. Can you talk about this post-war period and specifically about HBS? Yeah, I talk about. Um, I wrote a chapter actually to um, Harvard Business School in particular, but it's part of a wider story, as I as I made clear. So by the interwar years, and this book is moving chronologically. By the interwar years, you, you've now got large businesses, increasing hierarchies of your managers, and you've got a concern to, widespread concern, to make management a profession, just like the law or medicine or something. So people are thinking about what does a profession need? And one thing it probably needs is a code of ethics or a view of responsibility. And this is certainly the view of um, Donham. He's basically, Dean Donham basically says, you know, corporations are now so big in the world. Secondly, other things like government and religion are, are not quite working as they, as they should for, for a better society. So business leaders have got to take up, take up a better position. 
to help um, to help improve society. Um, and I actually begin the book of a speech he gave when they opened the new campus at HBS, when he says, you know, there's going to be a collapse in civilization unless business acts more responsible, responsibly. Um, and he's quite right, as a, as a matter of fact. There is, and he says that in 1927, and things are going to go very, very badly. So the chapter is all about, you know, how you, how you trying to train the next generation of business leaders to be more responsible. Um, and again, it's a bit of a mixed, it's a bit of a mixed picture. He creates the first professorship in ethics at Harvard Business School. It doesn't work. The guy leaves after like six years. Nobody will take his courses. Uh, whatever. Um, he uh, he does create the discipline of business history because he thinks, and one of the reasons for that is he thinks students can learn from the past, including learning about what went wrong from the past, and that does prove a more um, that does prove a more sustainable um, device. And he has lots of other ideas too. He wants to make philosophy mandatory to MBAs because he thinks that'll help them understand the, the world. So he has a he has a ton of ideas, some of which I I think are becoming more fashionable now, but a lot of them at the time just he can't get he can't get through. The students won't take the courses. Uh, nobody else, and the faculty is interested in what he's trying to to do. So it's a it's a very mixed, I think it's a, it's a mixed picture, but I think the ideas there are, again, something business schools now are starting to revisit or are revisiting big time, that you really need a more critical and more broader-based type of education. I am perhaps controversial, uh, uh, cynical about, not cynical, but doubtful about um, what exactly you can achieve. And the reason for that is that I think values, people acquire their values long before their mid to late 20s. And I'm not really convinced you can aspire to change people's fundamental values by their late 20s. I think you can still do things in business schools. I use the concept of, from, borrowed from Aristotle, of practical wisdom. I think you can p give people examples of good behavior and everything else, but I'm not sure you can shift their, their values. So I'm not sure how far you can use a business school in a more fundamental way. But you can do, certainly do some things, for sure. I actually want argue that if we want to shift societal values to, towards deep, more deeper responsibility, looking at K-12 education, what's taught to school kids, is probably a, something that needs to be done. But I don't know, Chris, if you would agree with that, because you are teaching. Yeah, no, I agree with the challenge of shaping values 
you know, after, you know, in, in the sort of the age range and sort of level of experience of the typical MBA student. Um, I also, a concern to me about business schools and, you know, I've spent most of my career at a business school, although my PhD is in sociology, uh, is that business schools actually are somewhat culpable in this last 40 year, you know, 50 year experience we've had with, you know, freedmanism and stakeholder or shareholder capitalism. And HBS, you know, really, although Donham and, you know, Rakesh Karana's book, um, you know, documents, I think also very nicely, this aspiration of business as a, as a profession, but really with Michael Jensen and finance accounting departments that really very narrowly create a, or create a bunch of mechanisms that very narrowly orient business leaders on share price. You know, the options is, is a, you know, a big example, which agency theory, which really came out of HBS and Rochester, where Jensen was before he came, he went to HBS. You know, I think this is something in the structural features, it goes back to, I think, the discussion of philanthropy, where there's, in addition to values, there's these systems in place that are important to draw attention to. And it's a challenge to think about how to actually change them. Uh, and the extent to which business schools will take on the mantle that, okay, there are significant challenges in business and how do we actually help create, you know, create the systemic changes that are necessary. And a lot of these are on the capital markets, ownership, which you talk about, and leadership and ethics, I think, are another important one, which, which your book definitely gets to. I mean, yeah, do Harvard Business School story is quite interesting. I mean, after World War II, Donham's retired. There is a continued emphasis on stakeholder capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the sort of ethical element's gone. And then it's a story about uh, the Cold War, how to make American capitalism seem very nice so people don't want to go communist. And then, indeed, right, and it, it wasn't McNamara. Also, wasn't uh, McNamara and and all of the sort of Vietnam War domino theory, um, you know, also has roots in Harvard Business School. Yeah, absolutely. And then they hire the Mike Jensen, right? They hire him the development of agency theory, and then HBS really, as I write about, is instrumental in diffusing that theory through their exec ed programs, through their consultancies. It's quite a paradox in view of the earlier history of the, the school. And, uh, and you're right, too, I think about business schools now. I mean, many of them have added courses on business and society, business and the environment. But the core courses that MBAs go through are still sort of rooted in, right, you know, shareholder value maximization and things. So now you've got a situation, you know, they'll do three or so classes in a day about all of that and then one class about being good and then they'll you know get back to it get back to business and you know and i think that needs and there's a need for a continuing and serious rethink about purpose of business education really to make sustainability and responsibility at the at the core of of every subject and that's so hard to do i think because for the most part, the tenured faculty are 
don't think like that. It's the same problem as Donham faced. He he couldn't get anything through his his tenured faculty. They wanted to do their own thing, and that remains a huge problem now. I think. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good way to think about it. Um, you know, to have those core issues in mind, um, and I, I would put those two at the top of my list as well. The ones you articulated. How can businesses today, and perhaps more important, international business today, uh, think about impact and giving back to society? You could answer that at, at a high level, and you can answer it. You know, I'm talking in each chapter about how business responded, responded to what you can call the grand challenges of their time. So, you know, my criterion would be for the present day to think what are the grand challenges of today? And one could have a list, but right at the top of the list, I think, you know, environmental deterioration and, and climate change, income and racial inequality. Actually, they're two of the biggest grand challenges I can I can see. So my criterion would be constantly to look at what a business is doing and asking, are they helping to improve that situation or are they making it worse? I personally believe tax avoidance is making it worse. It's contributing to to inequality in that in that example. Uh, and the money should, you know, people should pay taxes where they where they earn them. And those taxes should be used by governments to pursue appropriate social social policies. So that would be my constant criterion for, for a business today. Are they helping the environment situation or are they making it worse? Are they making are they contributing to challenging inequality or are they making it worse? If a company is paying its executives huge salaries, I would say they're making inequality worse. They're not contributing. So I would constantly look at those issues. That's the questions I'd be asking my asking myself. If you want to go deeper down, you're in the world of you know ESG metrics, which is a horrible world <laughs> of of uh, greenwashing and you know all sorts of uh, you know honest attempts to measure environmental impact versus you know dishonest attempts to disguise environmental impact. So yeah, that's that's at that's at the next level. But I, I'm pretty confident about my my overall grand level view of what criterion I would I would use. To end the conversation and to mention key examples of your book. Uh, for the later period, could you discuss the case of The Body Shop, which I learned a lot about reading your book, all the good things uh, she's done, Roderick, and um, and the brand, but also some deceptions or exaggerations? I mean, Anita Roderick shows, yeah, I said before, I don't want to have a book about saints, and she's certainly not a, a saint. So she builds a highly successful beauty business, but she does it by you know, fabricating parts of her story. Even um, she claims to have got the idea of the body shops by looking at auto motor works in the United States. She actually saw a small shop in Berkeley, which was actually called the body shop and copies the whole idea. 
And much of her story is exaggerated, the natural ingredients, how much money she gives away, and I quite openly discuss that. And yet she also uh, built an image which makes her a successful campaigner, like, you know, on all sorts of issues, whether it's deforestation in um, in Brazil or for the Ogoni people in um, in Nigeria, and she does some she does, she does some real some real good. So you know, trade offs, right? She built her reputation by exaggerating claims, claiming this, claiming that, but then she does some good with the reputation she's built. And this, you know, the book is all about trade-offs, actually. And I think trade-offs are something which are not discussed nearly enough. We have a lot of literature saying, you know, good business, doing good always brings you good business. Uh, uh, We have, you know, shared value model, which is, again, saying more or less the same. But in fact, the reality is there are always trade-offs, and I think we need to think a little bit harder about trade-offs. What do I conclude at the end? I don't conclude, you know, it's very hard. She did a lot of good campaigning. She did a lot of fabrication. How do you balance that out? I don't even offer an overall judgment. I just say, here you are. This is the story. You decide. And you know, a lot of the purpose of writing this book, I think, is just to give people the information and say, look, here you are. You decide about responsibility business. I'm showing you this picture. I'm showing you what the trade-offs are. How you judge that, at least you'll be better informed after reading this book. Right. Well, that's actually, I think, a, yeah, even a nice thing to end on because I do, you know, that's, as I mentioned in my first comment, you know, what I really took from it that, you know, these examples are, you know, again, I think your emphasis on no one's a saint is, is a good one, but actually there's a lot of things in the history of business that still apply today and that we can continue learning from. So, you know, I just, I, I re- really appreciate uh, the book you wrote, Jeff. I enjoyed reading it and I, and I really appreciate Paula, you inviting me to be part of this, this talk as well. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation and I'm sure the audience will appreciate having different voices here. Jeff, last question, I promise. Uh, What are you currently working on? My next project is to write a business history of emerging markets since over the last hundred years with issues of responsibility and the environment central to my narrative. That's wonderful. Well, we'll be waiting for that for sure. Thank you very much for being here with me today, Professor Jeffrey Jones, author of the book, Deeply Responsible Business. And also thank you very much, Professor Chris Marquis, for being here with us. Thanks so much for your time, Chris and Paula. Great. Yeah, thank you, Paula. Thank you, Jeff. It was great to be part of this. And to the audience, thank you for listening today. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. And I have been your host uh, for this episode on the Economic and Business History channel of the New Books Network.